The ongoing revolution in technology is frequently compared to the enormous transformations that accompanied steam power and electricity. From artificial intelligence to quantum computing, daily headlines describe the new strides being made. Yet it's often hard to separate reality from hype, much less to understand how best to prepare. Welcome to the Managing the Future of Work podcast from Harvard Business School. I'm your host, Bill Kerr. Today I'm speaking with Sophie Vandenbroek, Vice President of Emerging Technology Partnerships at IBM. Sophie's exceptional career has also included being the Chief Operating Officer of IBM Research and the Chief Technology Officer of Xerox. Sophie will describe the major inflection points ahead in technology and the challenges leaders will face in managing them. Welcome, Sophie. Thank you for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be here, Bill. Thanks for having me. Sophie, tell us a little bit about your current role at IBM. So in my current role, I have the privilege to work with brilliant researchers around the group, as well as clients and partners in really identifying what are the key challenges, what are the key opportunities, and then jointly making them a reality. I was actually born and raised in Belgium, came to the U.S. for graduate school, and my first job after getting my PhD in microelectronics was at IBM Research. And okay. so, unfortunately, I lived like seven hours from work, and so that was not possible after the second kid was born, and I joined Xerox Research up in Rochester, New York, okay. where I had also the privilege of working with many great researchers around the globe and with our clients, and for the last 11 years, as you mentioned, I was chief technology officer, and then when Xerox split into two companies, both Xerox and Conduent, I decided to go back to IBM Research because indeed IBM has the best commercial research lab in the world. We have several Nobel Prize winners and fellows in their technical societies. We are working on technologies, everything from nanotechnology to microelectronics, yeah. cloud security, Internet of Things, quantum computing, yeah, blockchain, we got a lot to cover in this podcast. AI and everything <laughs> in between. Uh, And there are almost 400,000 IBMers that can then help sell uh, these innovations to our clients and make an impact to billions of people. So artificial intelligence is currently uh, a hot topic. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the technology development side. What's caused this? Yeah, we are at the beginning of an exponential curve, I would say, of accelerating new knowledge creation. But in fact, Artificial intelligence itself has been around for decades. Let me describe it a little bit. In 1955, Marvin Minsky and an IBM manager, Mr. Rochester, together uh, with two other co-authors, drafted a proposal to hold a summer workshop at Dartmouth on artificial intelligence. And it's the first document in which the word artificial intelligence was coined. And in fact, if you go read it, they talk about neural nets and about learning and natural language. They also created the initial neural network deep learning algorithms. However, it didn't go very far because uh, there was no data to train these neural networks and neither was there compute power to really do the training with all the data. And so fast forward, thanks to Moore's law, there is now huge compute power available. There were about, the transistor was invented in the 50s, mm-hmm. 1,000 uh, transistors per square centimeter in the 70s, and today 10 billion transistors yes. on the same chip, right? So yeah. huge high-performance computers 
are available in the cloud for training your neural nets, as well as, of course, that compute power led to amazing compute capabilities in all of our pockets. That combined with what's called uh, Metcalf's law, which is Rob Bob Metcalf. He was at Xerox Park when he invented the Ethernet, which led to the Internet, which led to uh, the networking effect when all the devices and laptops and computers were connected. The power of the network is proportional to the number of users on the network, and that's called Metcalf's law. It's actually two to the end, but... That network effect has led to some of the most valuable companies in the world today, and it has also led to an explosion of data. I mean, lots of digital data is available today. And so the combination of the digital data being available and the compute power is such that at this moment in time, AI is real. So these neural networks, these deep learning algorithms for the first time back in 2012, they were better than the handcrafted algorithms that were there before, or even better than humans at categorizing, for example, uh, images. Uh, but it was a combination of uh, compute power and data that really makes AI a reality okay, so today. Conception's been around for a long time. We just didn't have the right ingredients to, to put in there. Yeah, we didn't have the right infrastructure, the right ingredients, as you say, between the data and the compute power to make AI a reality. We're at the beginning of this exponential curve. All of us are used yeah. to live in linear time, right? Distance is linear, yeah. time is linear. Exponential is like driving a car that's constantly accelerating. It's going to go very, very fast. All industries, everybody needs to understand what is AI going to do to my business, right? One of the ways I phrased it was that we were having the midterm elections. And between then and when we have the next presidential election, there'll be the two years. And so if, if computing power is doubling every two years, that means what we have then will be equivalent to everything that's come up until this midterm election. So what are the new capabilities that are emerging with this power? Some have already emerged. Today, artificial intelligence, and especially what's called narrow AI, is very good. Let me first explain narrow AI, and we just exited the narrow AI phase, is being able to do things at superhuman capability, but it's very limited to what's possible. For example, it's being able to recognize skin cancer, or being able to cluster and then categorize certain documents like healthcare payments, the healthcare forms and documents that the doctors submit to get reimbursed, most of that is handled and recognized with AI, and natural language processing, extracting the content out of the forms, knowing what kind of forms is it, and then automating the backend processes. Mm -hmm. So today, AI is doing a lot of things, but they're very well-defined tasks. I mean, many people might be familiar with virtual agents that help you book a flight or that help you figure out problems that your mobile phone might have. Yeah. But again, it's very narrow problems. Yeah, and um, then you get frustrated and ask for a real agent. And yeah, in some <laughs> cases, you get frustrated because it's narrow, right? Yeah. If you ask something it's never seen before, it can't answer you. What AI can do today very well is especially with visual images, it, looking at images and being able to categorize uh, or cluster new concepts. It's able to then use it to automate processes. It's able to do simple predictions. And in the future, what we see is that artificial intelligence will also be able to create new knowledge and to accelerate discovery and to help people be more creative 
and and then go from there to become ultimately general AI, which is a computer that can do and think and act very similar to humans. But the belief and the point of view by experts today is that's going to be 2050 and beyond. Okay, uh, for the general AI. By the time we're, at least I am very yeah. old, so. <laughs> well, I think we all age at the same rate. <laughs> Although that's right. Sometimes I feel I'm aging exponentially, but let's, let's not come back to that. What are some of the things yes, IBM yes, is doing? Yes. We have worked with many healthcare and life sciences enterprises. For example, we work with Pfizer to be able to look and observe in a non-intrusive way, leveraging cameras in, in a house, for example, on how individuals have Parkinson's disease, how the medicine is working. I mean, whether they are moving normally or whether the medicine is not mm-hmm. working and they have some issues. And so with visual analytics, you can be able to analyze the impact of medicine. In addition, if you actually listen to patients and in the same house on our campus in the research headquarters in Yorktown Heights, we have installed microphones to actually listen to people and listen to how they talk. And then we can analyze the speech patterns and looking at the speech patterns, you can in fact learn a lot about the mental health of an individual. And so working with the National Institute of Health and training our algorithms on patients that we know have schizophrenia or mania or that have the onset of Alzheimer, yeah. we have trained them on a couple hundred patients. But then looking at new patients, you can, leveraging these algorithms, predict whether they have certain mental health situations. That is very valuable because today, more than 5% of individuals have mental health issues. It's a big cost. It's a slow process to be able to diagnose. So if you can make it more accessible to more individuals and more broadly, you can have a positive impact on health. Giving an an example that's more business-related, like what we do at IBM ourselves today, is we are using deep learning algorithms to help the salespeople better create bids or better create pricing when we bid on on an outstanding solution that we're going to provide to a client, right? So at IBM, every individual solution that's provided is different. So they're all unique. So it's not just a price list. Every solution is unique. So it has certain software. It might have some consulting associated with it. It has some after-sale maintenance. It's uh, very related. differentiated. So it's yeah, both everyone from competitors is different. and also from the other things you've done from uh, other services we provide to different clients. So there is not a standard price. And so in the past, salespeople would, based on their experience, make up a price for what they are selling to this particular enterprise. And overall, I mean, the efficiency has gone from four hours to zero. It's instant. You put it in and the algorithm says, okay, as long as you stay within this boundary, you can go forward with your customer. And the revenue has increased by 8%. And we've sent 50,000 different bits through this system, and every month we retrain. One of the things you have to do when you deploy these deep learning neural networks-based systems is you have to retrain them about every month or every quarter with the new data as it comes in. Because the world changes. Because the world changes or you have new information available, so it's a constant learning. These systems continue to learn. It's not like you program them once and that's it. As things change, the systems have to continue to learn. What gets in the way of more rapid adoption of some of these technologies? There are several challenges. Let me list a few in order. Number one is 
being able to have clean data that's accessible. Often, if you look at an enterprise and even different businesses within the enterprise, the data is in different locations. They might reside both on-prem, so within the company itself or in multiple clouds. It's really hard to get to the data, and often it's unstructured. 80% of the data is unstructured information, not just nice numbers in databases. For example, the acquisition that IBM is working on with Red Hat, who has also been our partner for many years now, will allow clients to more easily access their data across multi-cloud and on-prem hybrid cloud environments and be able to then use that data across these different clouds to actually create insights, levering AI algorithms, etc. The collecting, cleaning the data is a very big one. Number two is in the deep, narrow AI, which is also what's been used by consumers on the internet. Algorithms were trained on millions of images. For example, algorithms easily recognize a cat is a cat or other objects, but it's been trained on, on really huge volumes of images. In an enterprise setting, whether you're a hospital or a school or a small and medium business, you don't have millions of data points to train on. A hospital might have several thousands of patients, but maybe if you're looking at a certain specific disease, maybe only a couple hundred that have the disease. So it's this training on small data, which is a big challenge. And that's where research is happening both at IBM research, as well as, for example, in the MIT IBM Watson AI Lab on what's called transfer learning, that you can train AI models on one set of data and then personalize it or customize it uh, for given hospitals with their own data. Because one of the core principles of IBM, for example, is that our client's data is their data, their insights are their insights. So we never use uh, client A's data to train a neural network that's then used with client B, right? I mean, we really keep the data separate. So being able to do transfer learning and being able to train based on small data sets. And how far are we down that journey? Conceptually, technically, how far are we down that journey to being able to do AI on small data sets? There is good progress being made. For example, we worked with clients on being able to train algorithms that can be creative. So an algorithm, and, and this is, for example, with, with Simrise, this one company where we have trained algorithms to create new perfume fragrances. Yeah. And so you can train it to uh, create perfumes. And in fact, we did it with them to create perfumes for millennials in Brazil for one of the companies that they were providing the perfume to. And the algorithm itself is not limited by what the perfumer knows. Normally, it takes like 10 years to train a perfumer. There are trillions of possibilities of putting new combinations together yeah. of 100,000 of formulas and thousands of ingredients. And so what we did is we trained this algorithm with all this past data from that the company had where we knew the outcome, right? This was a success. This is not a success. You know the price outcome. You know also the ingredients. And so then if new customers show up, you can much more easily create the new starting formula from which to work to create a new flagrant. So and everything, the whole cycle is much faster. It can be lower cost. Now, if the company, once these neural nets are trained, and instead of perfumes, you want to do flavors, for example, uh, you could potentially retrain similar algorithms uh, with flavors and then come up with new 
flavors. I think the next one is transparency, especially in the in the age of narrow AI. Many of these algorithms will give you an answer. They will tell you if you apply for a loan, the algorithm might say yes or no, you get a loan, but it doesn't tell you why they came up with the answer. So it's like black boxes. And that is also not acceptable for enterprises. The clients are going to want to know why do I have cancer or why am I rejected for this loan or why am I not hired? Not just, yeah, the algorithm thought your resume wasn't good enough. The other one is the trust and to make sure that the algorithms are fair and not biased, right? Yeah. There are also many examples of algorithms that were used, for example, in hiring. We're going to hire software engineer for your company, and most of the resume you will get are all, for example, resumes from men and not from women. And of course, the issue there is that the whole training set, the decades of training set of the type of people you've hired have naturally been more men and women, but you don't want the algorithm to rule out exceptional women resumes uh, because they are a woman. I mean, the algorithm can, you can get into this vicious circle of, of reinforcing bias. So being sure that the algorithm is unbiased, whether it's from gender or race or age or where you live and many other elements of bias. I mean, this is ongoing research is very important. And in fact, IBM, we have recently open sourced AI Fairness 360 Ethics Toolkit where you can bring your models that you have trained, no matter which framework you use to train your model. You bring it to the AI OpenScale, it builds on the AI Studio that's on the IBM Cloud, but you bring in your model and the system will look at your model and decide if there is bias or not and then give recommendations on how to fix the bias. Let's talk about another big word that's out there, which is blockchain. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about what IBM is doing in this space? Yeah, we are actually doing a lot. People think blockchain, they often think Bitcoin or cybercurrency. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. There's a lot of uh, obviously big swings in those prices and questions about what's hype or what's going to be real about that. Yeah. And so in IBM, we are not interested in creating cyber currencies. Uh, everything we do is built on the Hyperledger, which is also open source platform. And in fact, a lot of the code in Hyperledger came, came from IBM, but many other companies and developers are contributing. We have now coin that is also part of the blockchain solution, but that's linked to the fiat currency, so to the dollar and the euro and the yen, and because people do have monetary transaction needs on the blockchain, but it's not speculative and it's it's related to being able to do transactions. Because yes, there are, there are kind of like three categories that blockchain is being used for now. One is these cryptocurrencies, and I'm not going to talk about that because most enterprises are not interested in that. Uh, number two is to create trust in physical goods or high-value digital goods or are shipped and transacted across entities that might not normally uh, trust each other. And so it's all around the value chain, and I, I will give a couple examples there. But the third one is around digital identity and authentication of whether it's small and medium businesses or even in the future individuals. So it's a digital self. Right. But let me give some example of the value chain project. One is we worked initially in research and then the business unit with Walmart as food was shipped. We started the project with pork, I believe, from the farmer in China to the table and making sure that it was understood all of the transactions that happened in this process and they were focused on, on food uh, safety. It was the initial 
goal for Walmart. And in the meantime, over the next several years, the Walmart food safety network has broadened and now most of Walmart suppliers are in the network. So as you can see, it's a permission-based network. So Walmart is there, many suppliers and many other companies and many stores. Everybody's in the network, but it's permission-based. It's not open to just anybody to come in. It's uh, the ledger of all the transactions is uh, distributed and visible to everybody in the network. And then every time a transaction happens, like from a farmer to distribution center or to a store or any of these transitions, create a new block in the blockchain that uh, has all the content of what actually happened. It's encrypted. It's immutable. Nobody can change it without everybody else seeing yeah. it. And by doing that, now when there is, for example, an outbreak of E. coli or exactly. uh, illness, foodborne fast illness, food restaurants or other- which really makes about 48 million uh, people in, in the U.S. sick every year. It's a huge number. <laughs> And it's a huge cost, about 16 billion in food is destroyed. Uh, That's all pre-blockchain infrastructure. Now, with the blockchain, if there is an E. coli outbreak, for example, you can almost instantaneously track back where did this exact lettuce come from or where did this exact produce come from. You can track it all the way back to the farm. So instead of needing to take so much food off the shelves in the store and the whole value chain being shut down for seven weeks because it's just so hard to track it down, it's like instant. So that's very powerful for Walmart and others that are in the food industry. There's a powerful future there. And I want to also ask you for a few minutes to talk about quantum computing, which we hear a lot in the headlines right now as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what this is doing? Is it really going to wreck all of our cybersecurity passwords uh, and protections? And when is this going to have an influence in all of our lives? Quantum computing is one of those technologies that's on an exponential curve. It was back in the 1980s, actually 1981, that Richard Feynman at a conference also organized by IBM and MIT, coined the term quantum computing because uh, the notion is nature isn't digital, so it based more like quantum physics. So can we figure out a computer that computes more like in the quantum physical way? Like the digital computing is very, very fast right now. In fact, just a few months ago, the latest high-performance computer called Summit was sold by IBM to the National Lab in the U.S., and it has 200 petaflops, or 200,000 trillion calculations per second. Sounds like a lot. A lot. That's super fast. Uh, But nevertheless, these high-performance computers, based on these digital transistors as the basic mechanism, can't even simulate molecules that are kind of like a caffeine molecule. I mean, at, at a very accurate level, all the energy levels, etc., within those molecules, these chemical molecules. And so if you could get a quantum computer to work where the unit instead of a transistor is a qubit, and this qubit has two characteristics. Instead of just being a one or a zero, they can be in an enormous amount of states at the same time, and they are entangled. One qubit is entangled to to all of its neighbors. And so these two characteristics make it such that these computers can do an enormous amount of parallel compute power. IBM had a five-qubit machine about a year and a half ago. Then we announced roughly a 20-qubit machine about a year later. Now we're up to 50-qubit machine, which is already very large. 
We have open-sourced IBM Q, it's called, the quantum computer. It's in the lab, but you can access it through the internet. And in fact, many researchers have access to computer. About 70,000 people around the globe have run programs on this computer, everything from just simply playing with the qubits to creating simple games. Six million experiments have been done, and, and it just keeps rising. So there is a huge amount of interest. Not only and 120 scientific papers already have been written. In fact, we had the cover of Nature magazine simulating simple molecules, which showed that a quantum computer can indeed do that much better than digital computers. But yes, what you said is what the scientists predict is that this quantum computer can, in fact, break cybersecurity encryption methodologies that are in use today. Luckily, our point of view is that this won't happen until there are thousands of qubits. Today we have 50, so it's not tomorrow. But you're growing rapidly. Yes, in this exponential world and growing fairly rapidly, that, that is definitely something we predict will happen, right? And so in parallel, security researchers are working on methodologies like n-dimensional lattice encryption, which will be way harder to break, even by quantum computers. When do you think quantum computing is going to impact the average person's life in a substantial way? Is that five years out, 10 years out? I think it's very hard to predict because the technology is so hard. Yes, we have 50 qubits, but in order to truly impact our lives, you need to get at least 5,000 or uh, or more, right? So I would say three, five years. But before that, clearly, life sciences organizations, financial institutions, security, yeah. I mean, and commercial applications to start developing. You will be able to accelerate material discovery if you can clearly simulate these molecules, right? So... But then between coming up with a new discovery for life sciences and it impacting me as an individual, there is still a lead time, FDA approval, all the other things. So I would say if if you go play with it today, it can impact you today. I would clearly encourage people to learn not only about quantum, but about blockchain and AI. There are a lot of open courses. In fact, IBM has worked on EDX, edX, it's Harvard, MIT, movie theater, I call yes. it. There are now courses on open source, on uh, quantum computing, on blockchain. There are courses on AI. So just many being places able, to go. In, yeah, many places to go and, and, and learn about these technologies yeah. and think about them. So, Sophie, you've been a strong advocate for women in STEM fields and also talked about your personal life as a working mother with a demanding career. Tell us a little bit about your perspectives here and some advice you might give. Yes, indeed. Throughout my career, I had three kids, which are now all, uh, knock wood, happy, mature adults, which is fantastic. There are many pieces of advice, right? Number one, make sure you work for a company where you can truly be yourself, where you can bring yourself to work, where you don't need to wear a suit that doesn't fit no matter who you are, right? It could be whether you're man or woman, whether you're gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, whether you're religious or atheist, whether you're old or young, whether you're physically able or not. So finding an organization where you can truly be yourself is very important. In addition, somewhere where you can bring your full self, which includes your family, to work. And also work for a company where you're really passionate about what you're doing. Life is just way too short and you're going to be less happy if you don't 
fully care about what you're working on. It could be the purpose of the company. It could be for many scientists is being challenged by solving a difficult problem. It could be you like your colleagues. It's just fun, fun working, which is very important. But then specifically for individuals or women or men is look at it in three areas. Number one is being able to prioritize. You can't do everything, right? In my case, I had three little kids. I was raising them alone. I had my work, and they vary as your life goes on, right? So in my case, my priority is when my kids and my work and not as much like I didn't organize many parties or had a lot of time to go out for coffee with friends or or be involved in volunteering. There was just no time. Time is always so limited. So being able to prioritize is very important. And for everybody, that's different. But again, for me, it was my kids and then my work. And I also realized very quickly that unless you also prioritize your own health, your own well-being, forget about everything else, right? So I prioritize being able to have enough hours of sleep, eating healthy, exercising, and always making sure I had at least one good friend, right? You have to prioritize. And then once you prioritize, you lean in on those things that you um, that you care about, right? You lean in on making sure you're there for, for the right events in your kid's school or leaning up at work that you write and publish papers in the best journals or that you really accomplish your project and exceed your manager's expectation. And so you, so you really lean in in the couple areas that you selected. But more important, and that's where it's hard for many people, you lean out everything else. Okay. Tell us a little bit about leaning out. <laughs> for example... Um, I think you have a great book title. Yeah, leaning out, right? <laughs> exactly. In my case, one of the things was I hired students to go grocery shopping for me. Uh, and you don't have to be rich to do that. Because, in fact, if you go... if Every time I went grocery shopping... I would add some good European cheese or some olives and boom, it was already more expensive than having a student go shopping for an hour or a couple hours and just following exactly the spreadsheet of whatever was checked off once a week. And so, yes, you then have to accept that the bananas might be more ripe than you would have selected them or more green. So you have to kind of live with some of the trade-offs. But at least these kind of things, a lot of the jobs and what the women do today and men can be basically outsourced. Uh, and, and again, it does need to be expensive. And in fact, today Amazon shows up and sure, puts do. all of that on my, on my doorstep. It's even easier. There's a lot more than that. Too, I'm talking <laughs> 20 years ago. But you, you get the concept, right? Being able to just lean out, saying no to many things, taking simple vacations that don't require a lot of planning, etc. So that is, that is just uh, very important, right? The prioritization and the leaning in because then you're going to feel good about yourself and your kids and your work if, if you really commit a significant amount of time on that and, and leaning out as much as possible of okay. everything else. Let me ask one final question, which is any parting advice for MBA graduates given the dynamic future ahead, how they should manage that? Definitely. One is since we discussed artificial intelligence a lot, right? And artificial intelligence is really the new electricity. It's the new internet. Make sure you take a course before you graduate and understand the basics and see how can you infuse these technologies in whatever future job you're going to take. But not only that, my major piece of advice is 
continue to always learn, right? Always be a student. Five years, 10 years, there will be new technologies. I mean, constantly learn because the world doesn't stand still. And so you can't just say, I'm finished learning, now I go to work. No, you have to be a student your whole life. Great. Thank you, Sophie, for walking us through the technology roadmap ahead and the big issues on the horizon. Thank you, Bill. It was my great pleasure to be here.